The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Monday edition of Squawk Box. Uh, G20 leaders call for equitable global access to COVID vaccines and commit to supporting the economy with host Saudi Arabia hailing the stimulus measures taken by government so far. We injected over $11 trillion into the global economy to support businesses and protect individuals' livelihoods. This is an unprecedented G20 economic stimulus. U.S. futures rise and uh, Europe's opening calls point to a higher open. Despite infection stateside surging, by a record 195,000 to over 12 million cases. Vaccine optimism boosting sentiment as Germany unveils plans to start rolling out inoculations as soon as next month, while Spain's Prime Minister promises to vaccinate large parts of the population from January. And President-elect Joe Biden prepares to name his cabinet picks tomorrow. With their NBC learning that Anthony Blinken is the frontrunner for Secretary of State. So very good morning. Let's focus on this uh, headline G20 leaders meeting then. They've pledged to support efforts to safely and affordably distribute COVID-19 vaccines around the world following a two-day virtual summit hosted by Saudi Arabia. In a joint communique, the group also called for more cooperation to back global health systems during the pandemic, but didn't provide any further details on the development of new potential treatments. Well, President Trump apparently briefly took part in the summit, but did not participate in any sessions on the pandemic. Let me just say that again. 195,000 coronavirus infections in the latest tally, up to 12 million in the United States. Uh, And the president did not participate in any sessions on the pandemic. In a statement, Trump instead focused on environmental policy, defending his decision to take the U.S. out of the Paris climate deal as part a move to protect American jobs. Dan, just um, tell me, uh, how much was one of the most important nations in the world involved in this G20, i.e. the United States? Was the president there or was he on the golf course? I know he's refuted um, that he was spending the weekend playing golf. Well, not much at all, Steve. And, you know, the other interesting thing is when the king of Saudi Arabia was delivering his final historic closing statement, it was Trump's top advisor, Larry Kudlow, sitting in the commander in chief's chair for that address. Clearly an abdication of responsibility here from the United States to show leadership at this forum and on the world stage, perhaps even a lost opportunity. Now, you know, Saudi Arabia has been under intense pressure here to lead the global response to coordinate these G20 nations to address the coronavirus crisis and put the global economy back on track. And look, the final declaration was encouraging. It had some very positive words about how these leaders are going to work together, but it certainly offered no breakthrough or panacea moment for the virus or the economy. We saw leaders pledging to spare no effort to protect 
lives, uh, focus on the vulnerable, restore economic growth and protect jobs, but stop short of detailing exactly how. Uh, as you pointed out before, there was some good news on global efforts to support the vaccine rollout. Leaders committed to ensure affordable and equitable access here, which is, of course, seen as critical when it comes to addressing this major global challenge, as the king of Saudi Arabia points out here. Listen. The G20 countries pledged after the outbreak more than $21 billion to support the immediate funding needs, notably for the development of diagnostic tools, vaccines and effective therapeutics. The kingdom contributed $500 million to support these efforts. In the G20, we agreed to spare no efforts in creating the conditions for affordable and, for affordable and equitable access to COVID-19 vaccines, therapeutics and diagnostic tools. We injected over 11 trillion dollars into the global economy to support businesses and protect individuals' livelihoods. This is an unprecedented G20 economic stimulus. We also extended the social safety nets to better protect those prone to losing their jobs or source of income. That was Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. My apologies. When it comes to the economic outlook, though, leaders were bearish overall, I would contend. The commentary here was quite interesting as well. Uh, they said that in terms of where we move from here, they say the recovery is far from guaranteed. They've described it as uneven, highly uncertain and subject to elevated downside risks. However, there was some positive progress when it, came, when it comes to debt relief. Uh, this is certainly something that the G20 nations can take in their stride. This is seen as one of the biggest breakthrough moments for them throughout the course of these virtual sessions. Uh, there was also a strong commitment to improve the global trading system, which is an area that has been uh, perhaps under uh, attack under the Trump administration, uh, and also clear commitment here to address inequalities created by the coronavirus pandemic, including a focus on youth, a focus on women, and of course, a renewed focus on the environment, which is uh, unique for this G20 meeting as well. Uh, looking forward, though, when you look at the optics of this, I pointed out for the United States, this could be uh, somewhat of a challenge moving forward, particularly as it navigates this transition between Trump and Biden. But for Saudi Arabia, this was certainly a very positive moment. They used this opportunity to elevate themselves regionally and globally, certainly highlighting the slower dance to modernity that that country is on in this part of the world, uh, showing that it is making progress in key areas and uh, at the same time as well, also highlighting that uh, Saudi Arabia will continue to play a leading role in regional negotiations like this into the future. So some optimism coming off the back of this G20 meeting, but certainly no major breakthrough on the economy or the virus, guys. Back over to you. Dan, let me um, ask you about the Chinese position at the G20, because we obviously have focused a little bit on what President Trump did or didn't do. And um, the fact that he left early seemed to have drawn uh, some attention. But as, but as I understand it, Xi Jinping also didn't hang around either. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the Chinese position on this story? Well, Xi Jinping certainly contributed to the conversation, but you're right, Jeff. He also uh, 
perhaps moved away from some of the more uh, tougher conversations here. Uh, what we heard from Xi Jinping was certainly a commitment on the issue of debt relief. It seems like China will play a larger role on that issue into the future. Of course, China is the uh, largest foreign creditor to a lot of those heavily indebted nations and has a huge responsibility at the G20 to address that challenge. It has been under pressure to do so for several months now. Uh, at the same time, Xi also committed to free open and fair trade. Uh, this is going to be unique to watch as well, particularly given the uh, outgoing Trump administration's focus on addressing trade reciprocity between these two powers. It's been a major problem for the United States and Team Biden incoming is also going to have to, have to address this. Uh, look, whether or not the G20 is the forum to do so remains to be seen. But what we've also seen out of the G20 is a commitment to support the multilateral trading environment and also multilateral in institutions that can support this uh, this uh, divide between the United States and China. So this is going to be something to look out for in the future. But if you were to compare uh, the two leaders' contributions, it does seem like President Xi has the upper hand here. Dan, we will wrap you there. Thanks so much for giving us the report. Let's um, move on here. Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal Al Saud has told CNBC the kingdom will work closely with the new U.S. administration. In an exclusive interview with Hadley, uh, he discussed how the change in the White House could impact the Iran nuclear deal. The deepest concern, of course, is that uh, the Iranians have now uh, blown well past the restrictions that they agreed to in the JCPOA, which is indicative of uh, uh, how uh, uh, easily uh, they could have uh, at any point uh, uh, gone forward with uh, their nuclear program. We believe that uh, the issue isn't just with the nuclear program, it is with uh, the regime in Iran and its intent. So uh, the issue with Iran is the fact that it uh, continues to believe in uh, imposing its will on the region, on exporting its revolution to its neighbors and beyond. Uh, and we need to address that. So I like to call uh, uh, what we see in the future as uh, JCPOA++, something that addresses the nuclear program, which is critically important, of course, uh, uh, but also that addresses the regional malign activity. Right, so much to pack into this show, so let's crack on. Listen into our School Box podcast for more on how the uh, coronavirus vaccine news are developing and treatments affecting global markets. We'll be back after a short break. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. The U.S. has now reported over 12 million confirmed coronavirus infections after breaking another single-day record of over 194,000 new cases on Friday. This according to NBC data. Millions of Americans are reportedly planning to travel during the coming Thanksgiving holiday. Meanwhile, Donald Trump uh, Jr., has become the latest in the president's immediate circle to test positive for the virus, with President Trump tweeting, his son is doing well. The chief scientific advisor of the White House's Operation Warp Speed vaccine program has told CNBC a vaccine should be available for a quick rollout soon. 
as soon as the EUA is approved within 24 hours, the vaccines will be in the immunization sites and people will be immunized. We will have, as the month goes by, within the month of December, up to 35 to 40 million doses, enough to immunize more or less 20 million high-risk individuals. The subject matter is stunningly serious, but does anyone else out there, every time you hear warp speed, think of Scotty saying to Kirk, I can't do it, Captain. Anyway, sorry. Uh, let's move on. The markets are down on Friday. The futures are called higher as well on the US markets. Week today, very interesting. Uh, we saw the Dow down 0.7 of a percent. We saw the S&P down 0.8. We saw the Russell 2K up 2.4% again. So we're seeing a little bit of that rotation story coming through that we've talked about a little bit more. Let's move on on the walls and take a look at one or two more. Uh, the one behind me is the moves from Friday, last week, a big part. these are the week to date ones. Okay, so as I say, week to date, uh, Dow transports were up 1.2%, but as you can see, the S&P 500 and the Dow both down over seven tenths of 1%. The Treasury yield as well, well, it's sitting towards the bottom of the recent range. We've had a 0.9 handle and we, but we're trading 0.83 or 0.8243, I should say, uh, just round it down on this one uh, on the 10 year at the moment. Of course, things to look out for today include market PMIs uh, around the globe, plus we have uh, data later in the week week on terms of FOMC minutes and leading indicators and a lot more besides. So Alibaba CEO Daniel Zhang has called China's move to rein in internet companies monopolistic behavior, quote, timely and necessary. The government published a draft of rules earlier this month designed to prevent digital platforms from dominating the market or adopting methods to hinder competition. Zhang's conciliatory comments come after the Chinese President Xi Jinping reportedly intervened personally to halt the Alibaba-backed Ant Group's $37 billion stock market debut, which was set to be the world's largest IPO in the world. Well, let's get straight to uh, Bob Van Dyke, who is the CEO of Process now and joins us to discuss the, the numbers. I, I saw your trading profits are up. Bob, what are you investing in? We're, thanks, thanks for having me today. Now, we're, we're investing um, in a couple of really exciting opportunities. We, we have gone big into uh, food delivery in many parts of the world. We are in, um, in EdTech, which has been, I think, a tremendous story with people uh, having to spend more time at home, educating themselves uh, behind their computers, uh, ordering their food, uh, keeping keeping themselves um, in good shape while um, while the world uh, has changed so much. It's interesting you're sticking to traditional investments when some of your erstwhile rivals out there have been trading in the derivatives market. You're not going to start doing that, are you, Bob? No, we, we very much uh, like like our investment approach. It's, it served us very well for many many decades. So we. We look for consumer trends where technology can make a, a, a real difference, and we invest in that for the long-term future. And interestingly, that, that future has come forward a lot with, with COVID. So we've seen really our e-commerce business grown uh, with more than 50% year over year. Um, and we also see that actually generate structural improvements in profitability. So we believe that the long-term approach has actually served us well and, and has actually accelerated now. Got to be a long-term approach, and I get that, Bob. I get that from all uh, walks as well. But especially when some of these valuations look absolutely extraordinary, both in the private market, the so-called unicorns of this world, and indeed on the listed as well. Do you have any concerns about those valuations? Because a lot of investors are beginning to rotate their portfolios. And I think it's essential to be really, really disciplined when markets are like this, right? We we did 
in the last six months invest uh, close to 600 million in a variety of new new sectors. I would say there's definitely a lot of exciting entrepreneurs out there who we love to back. So there's opportunity out there. On the other hand, we, we see also this is a time where you want to be smart about where you place your money. And one of the things that we've decided to do is actually uh, invest in our own assets by, by uh, buying back stocks. So we think there are good opportunities out there. You've got to be selective. Yeah, just tell us a little bit more about the um, thinking around the share repurchase uh, program here, Bob. Is this effectively to try and narrow this um, uh, gap on NAV that we're seeing in the market? Do we have him? Ah, we seem to have lost Bob. What a what a shame! My three questions in first. Then. Well, absolutely, though. What a shame. Well, but it if, is if fascinating. We carry on talking it? here. There is a chance the technology will unfreeze. Well, I find that extraordinary, and I don't know if Bob can still hear us, but I just find it when I see a technology fund, or whether it's SoftBank or whoever is talking about buying back their own shares. Mm. I'm sorry, that to me is a big alarm bell. Either. Are you getting this the right side of the trade? Are your shares are here, and it's the same with the land companies. It has been historically, but yeah. your NAV is here. Yeah. Is someone telling you something about your NAV compared to where your shares are? So rather than buying back your shares, should you be thinking about the NAV that you have your portfolio at? So I think Bob's ready for your question. Well, I think you've set it up neatly there, <laughs> Bob. We were just discussing uh, the reasoning behind the share repurchase program. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you're doing it? Yeah, no, the story there is, is actually really, really quite simple. We, we have, um, over the years, really improved the profitability of our core assets. And it's given us a lot of financial flexibility to, to both invest in new opportunities, but also make use of the fact that actually our, our stock is quite undervalued at this point in time. So we're using that flexibility to, to buy back shares that are trading at a, at a meaningful discount to, uh, to the, the net asset value. There's a, there's a healthy debate going on at the moment, as you know, about what 2021 looks like and whether we get growth with the vaccine. How do you read prospects going forward? As I look at the statement that you've given this morning, it's very cautious. Uh, you talk here about the environment remaining uncertain. Uh, but as you look a little further out here, what do you think the growth prospects look like for you? Now, if I look in, in consumer internet, we, we really have always taken a view that we're investing for a future where technology will be more important for people. Um, and we've seen those those growth trends really accelerate tremendously with 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 uh, COVID. And even as as uh, the, the world improved a bit over the summer, we've seen that sort of momentum actually remain. So now uh, we, we don't think that the world will take a step back and stop using online products when uh, when the world gets somewhat more normalized. Um, I think there's a lot of uncertainty on, on how economies will develop, but I think online adoption has taken a jump and I think that's there to stay. Given that you invest so heavily in uh, Chinese internet businesses, to what extent do you think the world there has changed because of the Ant financial saga and this recognition now from the authorities that maybe there is a need for some antitrust regulation in the technology area. Surely that's going to bring down uh, the uh, supernormal profitability uh, and margin that we've seen from these companies that you buy stocks in. Yeah, I would say if, if you take uh, a view on what the, the impact of technology has been on the world, 
I think it's completely logical that we're going to see a meaningfully more regulation in the internet going forward. I think that's a, a very natural evolution because we all depend critically on, on online products now. So I think regulation must must actually come up. And I think um, we, like others, think that's actually healthy. I think it's done to ensure fairness and a reasonable approach. And I think the, the teams that we invest in are, are very well set up. I think they typically run a very open ecosystem. Uh, Tencent runs a very open ecosystem that I think uh, welcomes uh, regulation that is introduced to uh, to, to increase um, uh, a good operating environment. Bob, lovely to see you today. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. We do appreciate you're a busy man today of all days. So uh, Bob Van Dyke, who is the uh, CEO of Prosus. It's an interesting story. It actually can galvanize quite a lot of conversation. Global dividend payouts by the largest companies are set to fall by at least 17.5% this year, according to a report by asset management group uh, Janice Henderson. Uh, whilst this is a slight improvement over the company's previous best case estimate of minus 19%, it would still be the biggest drop since the financial crisis of uh, in 2009. Dividends from the top 1,200 companies globally dropped by $55 billion in the third quarter to $330 billion. Now, one could say that that's a bad thing. And, you know, someone who's looking for income and pensioners looking for income and exchequers looking for income mm -hmm. would say it's a bad thing. Um, but it's a highly logical thing because of the need to preserve cash amongst the crisis. Well, that's one way of looking at it. There's another way of looking at it as well, because how many times have you and I heard these flashy new phrases coming on about stakeholder capitalism? And mm. let's face it, you and I have just done a round with WEF as well, where stakeholder capitalism is the new mantra rather than shareholder capitalism as well. So whilst one can look back and say, this is because of the crisis, this is because uh, of the need to preserve crash, because of the concerns that many businesses have had, especially cyclical companies, about the viability of their businesses and they need to uh, hold back from the shareholders. Maybe there's something else going on here, which is a longer term trend, which means that actually dividends as we know them perhaps aren't going to look quite the same going forward. Um, what, better or worse? Depends who you are. Um, worse is for a shareholder, is so, what I'm saying. So, so here's, the, here's, the, here's the thing. I, I think anybody who's investing through the end of this year has to sit down and think very carefully uh, or try and put themselves in the seat of a CEO at this point, right? So you're running a business, you, you probably just about maintained your dividend payout, or you may even have just chipped it back a little bit to preserve some capital. Fourth quarter, we come into earnings season early into 2021, looking back at fourth quarter numbers. If you were a CEO, do you try and make those numbers look as good as you can to keep people on board, you maintain the dividend and you run into 2021, obviously trying to uh, show the business is still successful in spite of all the challenges around COVID? Or do your kitchen sink fourth quarter right off 2021, take the hit in the fourth quarter, numbers will look pretty grubby, but you hang on to the dividend and then you offer the sunny uplands running into Q1, Q2 with a vaccine and the so-called um, bounce back in this coiled demand that everybody wants to believe is there as households have preserved and lifted um, savings. And I, I think this is going to be a tricky one to negotiate because even as um, we're going to be looking for an uptick in demand here, I think we're going to see a lot of companies kitchen sink in the fourth quarter and just say, you know what, let's get all the bad news out there. Let's 
let's write off assets that have been sitting on the books that we know have never been worth what they've been priced at. Get rid of them. Start afresh for 2021. Maybe Q1 numbers will start to look really exciting. But Q4, I think it will be an interesting challenge. And of course, that raises questions about dividend. Look, I do not want to upset that vast army of our loyal viewers who rely on the income uh, from their shares. I get it. I like it. If anything of mine turns out to have as any income as well, going up would be nice. But, but, the fact, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, we are talking about a tiny percentage of the total return that one would expect to get from your portfolio, from your, um, your pension front, what have you, if indeed the market is good, if the, the growth in the economy. Look at the massive moves we've seen on some of these stocks recently. We're off our lows by 20, 30, 40, 50% in some cases. The average yield on the S&P 500, I know you know this number, has a two-handle. And it's a low two-handle as well. It's 2.07%. The average yield on the highest yielding major developed market, of course, you think it's the FTSE straight away, is 3.36. Now, if that's what you're relying on at the moment, then, then I'm afraid it's not going to be enough for your retirement as well. You need the capital growth as well. So if they can preserve that cash and if they can invest it in the company and have better workforces who are more enfranchised as well, Quite frankly, we're talking tiny numbers compared with the absolute moves on some of these stocks. Uh, 4% is the magic number. You know, as you look at your retirement, and I know that's a long way off for you (laughs) and for me, (laughs) but 4% is the magic number that the financial uh, community have penciled in for you to be able to... Is that as mythical as the 2% inflation figure? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) But you're not far away at 3.3 for the FTSE. But the the reality is, at this stage, anything that gives you return above... What are we? Seventeen trillion dollars worth of negative yielding paper out there in the bond market. Yeah. If you can generate something ahead of inflation at this stage, then you're probably feeling pretty happy with yourself. You hear this noise? Go on. That's the burrowing. That's that's the scraping away from Rishi Sunak and and Sadiq Khan and everyone. You know what they're doing? They're sniffing for anywhere they can find some money, whether it's capital gains over here, whether it's profits on second properties over here. So dare I say, any income that anyone's getting above the, uh, the mean at the moment as well, all around the world, politicians are going to have to try and find some money. And I have to say, dividends are going to be in the firing line as much as anything else, aren't they? Let's face it. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.